Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, we are joined by Mark Short. Mark Short most recently served in the Trump administration as the chief of staff to Vice President Mike Pence, assistant to the president and director of legislative affairs. Earlier in his career, he served as director of the Reagan Ranch for the Young America's Foundation. In addition to discussing Mark's duties working for Vice President Mike Pence, including working on the COVID-19 task force and Operation Warp Speed, the two also examined Biden's performance as president and its impact on recent and upcoming elections. If you enjoyed this conversation, make sure to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts or watch this episode in video form on youtube.com slash Reagan Foundation. Thanks for listening. Mark Short, welcome to the show. Roger, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, it, it's great to have you here. And, you know, many people know you from your time in the Trump uh, White House, first as legislative affairs, then as chief of staff to Vice President Pence. But for the Reaganism podcast and our listeners and viewers, you have a special place because earlier in your career, I won't say how long ago, uh, you were uh, the director of the Reagan Ranch. Tell us what that was like. Well, I think that was sort of a, um, an idyllic time um, for my wife and I. We were newlyweds when Young America's Foundation uh, purchased uh, the ranch. And at the time, you know, people forget that there was a couple different efforts to preserve it from both the federal government and the state, but those both collapsed. And I think, I think appropriately, because the notion that uh, Ronald Reagan would want American taxpayers to be paying for <laughs> the preservation of his property is probably uh, faulty. And Young America's Foundation stepped forward to acquire it. And um, Ron Robinson, the president of the foundation, asked if I would come back and work at Young America's where my wife was working at the time and, um, and for us to go head up the project of preserving the property and just to be, you know, in our twenties and to get to move to something, someplace like Santa Barbara <laughs> is, is an unbelievable opportunity. And yet to do something that we were so committed to in preserving the legacy of Ronald Reagan, particularly when our audience was college students where um, his legacy uh, was routinely criticized at that time on your campuses uh, was important, important to us, but it was just a magical experience for us. So we're sitting here in the Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C., across the street from the White House, Lafayette Park. And uh, what the viewers can't see and listeners can't see is that to Mark's left is the iconic image of President Reagan signing the uh, economic package at the Reagan Ranch. You know, we all know kind of Reagan as country Reagan. He loved the ranch, being on horses, cowboy hat and all that. But as a political matter, what was the symbolism? You look at that picture and describing it. You have Reagan at the ranch with a huge piece of legislation at the table, all the cameras and media surrounding him there. Why is that kind of a good visual to sign an economic package like that, tax cuts and the rest, on a ranch as opposed to in the Capitol or in the White House? Well, I think... You know, one of the contrasts is that even though the town closest to the ranch is Santa Barbara, 
one of the things that's um, remarkable about the ranch itself is it shows the humility of the president and Mrs. Reagan, that when you're there, you're in a 1500 square foot Adobe home with no central air, no central heat. And I think that what that personified for so many people was that he was able to connect with the average American. And so um, when he signs a bill uh, historically like that at the ranch, it's not with all sort of um, fancy elements. Yeah, no pomp and circumstance around that. Yeah. Right. And then I think, you know, that iconic picture is he's shrouded in the fog, which was always something, you know, great at that time in August of that year, you all said it, it's usually pretty hot, but right. in the mornings you had the fog up there. And so it, uh, it's, it's one of those pictures where you don't see a lot around him except for all the cameras and, and whatnot in the little table, the little table where he's signing the bill without a bunch of people around them, without other members of Congress there, without any pomp and circumstance. And, and the symbolism, you know, is not just that. It's, it's truly the message and reflects the president's Outlook, right? This is not, you know, rewarding legislators with with pens, for example. You see that all the time, but and it's not President Reagan all buttoned up, with suit and tie. We're talking about the way he would enter the Oval Office and do his work every day. But if the package was designed to help the everyday American to really impact the family life around that kitchen table, then he probably felt it ought to look that way and, and reflect that. You're right. I mean, it was uh, it it was it was not needing others there. It was I'm doing this for the American people. They're the ones that are going to turn our economy around if we're able to reduce the burden of government on on them. And um, and everything about that picture symbolizes that. Well, uh, let, let's move on from uh, the time of the ranch. Take you away from that honeymoon period, and it, <laughs> you know, your early you know started your marriage out in out in California. Uh, you've done some great things, interesting things, certainly. Uh, in outside government, you were on the Hill for years, chief of staff, um, as well as other positions. Uh, you had an interesting stint where you were president of Freedom Partners Chamber of Commerce. Uh, it was a nonprofit with a budget of over $300 million, as far as what we pulled together, and is dedicated to promoting, quote, the benefits of free markets and free society. That sounds good. Uh, explain how that connects to, you know, kind of your rest of your career and, and what you were doing during that time. It well, was what you did prior to join the Trump administration. Right? That's that's correct. So I had I had been Mike Pence's chief of staff on Capitol Hill when Republicans had reclaimed uh, the majority. But then you know Mike was was interested in going back to run for governor. Right. So he's head of the GOP conference, right? right. That's why I probably would we cross paths, or more I saw you from a distance when I was sitting in conference meetings, uh, accompanying members of, of Congress. Then he goes on and becomes governor of Indiana. Right. And, and you were about to relocate to Indiana, I guess. <laughs> I, 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 we were not looking to move to Indiana at that time. And so uh, I, I then worked, um, for, even though you defined it as Freedom Partners, it really was the political arm of Charles and David Koch's operation. And, um, and we were able to, to get support from a lot of, uh, of uh, entrepreneurs across the country who I think probably didn't feel as represented by some of the trade associations in D.C., but were more committed to how can we reduce the burden of government in our businesses and our economy. And so our focus was, was really about how do we stop the runaway federal spending? How do we help reduce um, the burden of government in, in regulations and in economic policy? And, and I think that we had enormous success in the 2014 cycle when we ushered in, I think, through our efforts, a whole new class of senators that um, uh, I think did help shape the, 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 uh, the body of, of the Senate. But um, 
uh, that was, it was, it was a fun experience to be working on the outside and helping to try to influence policy on the inside. Yeah. Press on that for just a minute, because you know, you've had all these significant positions on Capitol Hill and then you, you leave it, take this interesting position where you're trying to influence it easier or more difficult to kind of impact and, and, and push an agenda along uh, when you find yourself on the outside of government, but yet still, you know, highly influential and influential entity like, you know, Freedom Partners are working with, with the Cokes. Well, I think that uh, today there's a lot of conversation about um, gridlock and how difficult it is for, for there to be action. But Roger, I, I believe that's the way our founders intended it. Hmm. So when we, when, we com- when we complain that it's harder to get things done, I think our founders created a, a phenomenal system that actually makes it difficult to have dramatic changes. Uh, but it doesn't mean that it isn't uh, worthwhile to be engaged in that fight and try to fight for the things that our founders um, believed and cherished. And uh, and for us as conservatives, it was it was trying to fight for a limited government. And and at Freedom Partners, uh, we were very blessed to have so many entrepreneurs come forward and say, "I'm a little bit candidly frustrated with the Republican Party. I want to find another outlet where I can find." a group that, uh, that identifies with a similar philosophy. And, and the system certainly allows for it and, and, and made an impact. So we find President Trump uh, at the time, he's the Republican nominee, he's uh, picked Governor Mike Pence to be his running mate. Was that a surprise to you? Obviously, you kept a strong connection with uh, Governor Pence, and he's now on the ticket. You're his former chief of staff of the House Republican Conference. What was that like? When well, I, you know, I think honestly that uh, Mike could see something that a lot of us here in the Beltway didn't see. And what I mean by that is, You're talking about uh, Mike Pence when yes, this happened. Okay, yes. that, that being in Indiana, he could see. I think the frustration that so many voters had in feeling like the government no longer represented them. And I think after eight years of of the Obama presidency. I think Americans were sort of, we want to throw them all out, throw the bums out. And I think in many cases that Trump was the, um, the mechanism or the vehicle for them to get that message across. And I think that, that Mike Pence could feel that more in middle America, whereas I think if you're up and down the East Coast mm-hmm. and what you're seeing in the Beltway and the media coverage was just so displaced. And so when you look at that 2016 victory, it really was what happened in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan they really flipped that presidential race to the Republicans. And I think being governor of Indiana, he was better connected to see that grassroots movement that was happening and how angry so many voters were and feeling that their government no longer represented them. So he understood it and kind of anticipated something that was stirring. Well, I mean, I think it's hard to say anticipated because I think I, I don't, I think that Mike is a very faithful person, and I think he felt this is where he was called to serve, but not knowing that that's necessarily what would lead to victory in 2016. But um, but I think he definitely could sense there was a movement happening that many of our mainstream media was yeah. was not in touch with. Yeah. And so, of course, uh, candidate Trump becomes President Trump, and you find yourself as the White House Director of Legislative Affairs. Uh, that sounds like a lot of words, but- for our audience, that's the person the White House turns to for getting the Congress to carry out the president's agenda and in other times to prevent the Congress from doing things to go against the president's agenda. Tough job. You have 535 people at least you're responding to. When you take on that job at the beginning of the administration, it's almost more consequential, in my view, 
than any successor to that job later in administration, year three, four, or beyond, because the new administration comes in. We're seeing it right now with the Biden administration. They look to the Congress to push forward the new president's agenda. What was that like? That has to be daunting. It's like, oh, we have all these things we want to do. President Trump was famous for, you know, uh, promises made, promises kept, I think was his mantra. And I got to expect that he'd look at you and say, well, are you delivering for me, Mark? Well, I I think to to step back for one second, I I was really in that role because during the transition, um, Vice President Pence asked, well, you know, what do you really envision my role being? And the president was like, well, you know, Speaker Ryan, you've worked mm-hmm. with so many people who have now moved on to the Senate. You should be our lead in Capitol Hill. So it was for that reason that Pence said, well, then I, I would like Mark to be in this role. But <laughs> Thanks, boss. <laughs> but, you know, it, was, it, was within, it was in the matter, I think, the first couple of days that President Trump realized that that's where so much of the action and attention was. And he was like, OK, well, now I'm going to be in the middle of this. And, and Pence was in some ways uh, uh, a second player on, on some of the Capitol Hill outreach. But. Um, you know, look, we had our struggles too in the first year. People, some people forget, I don't, that we failed on the repeal and replace effort. And I think that was- That's, ref- that's referring to Obamacare. Of course, uh, Republicans ran against Obamacare and probably from the, right from the start when it was adopted. And, and repeal and replace was the language that Republicans uh, you know, said we were going to do once we got into power. We're going to just find yeah. some, something else that works for Republicans- respect to healthcare. I think it was a big disappointment because you say we had campaigned as Republicans for years. It helped bring about the, the House majority in 2010, the Senate majority in 2014. And then we finally take the control of the House, Senate, and White House, and we fail in the, what we pledged. Um, and I think, you know, it was an important lesson for us. And I think it's a lesson that, uh, that the Biden administration is experiencing now that those margins are tight. Mm. And so if we lost three Senate Republicans, then we weren't going to succeed. Tighter for Biden than it was for Trump. Exactly. So, you know, we, we, could, we couldn't afford to lose three. He can't afford to lose one. Right. And I think that, you know, people are looking at the struggles of this massive uh, socialist tax and spend bill that they're trying to push through. And it's not really surprising in, t- in light of how tight their margins are that they're struggling. But, you know, Roger, we were then able after that to complete significant tax reform. And, and I think one of our crown achievements was all the confirmation of judges, including that first year, Neil Gorsuch as a Supreme Court justice. And so we, there, were, there, were a lot of, there were a lot of successes, but you know that first one was a big legislative so, failure. Look, I want to jump into both the Tax Cuts and Job Act, as well as uh, Supreme Court um, nominations, both, I imagine, uh, sleepless nights for you. <laughs> When you All look, four years <laughs> fair enough. But repeal and replace. When you look back on, it, let's just get a little, I don't know, analytical here for a second, and and kind of playing if you know hindsight's twenty twenty. Was that the right thing to take on, given the narrow majority? Was the mandate there electorally in the way perhaps you felt you had the mandate for tax reform and a Jobs Act? You know, my sense is if you'd ask uh, a President Trump right now, uh, he'd say something nasty about John McCain and said, I, I would have had it. H- how do you view it? I, I think that in light of the promises we'd made to our voters, it is where we should have started. I would say tactically where we erred is that, um, you know, the House cunt sworn in, I think, on January 3rd. We were the 17th, 18th, 19th, something like that. So for two and a half weeks, they'd already started this process before we even had really come into office. And to be, to be fair, Senator McConnell had always said, you shouldn't do repeal and replace. I have the votes to repeal. My members are on record for repeal. Let's repeal first. 
and then come back with replace. But if you try to combine them, it creates different constituencies that come together. And what we found with the repeal and replace effort is that so many Republican governors had received so many federal dollars from Medicaid that they were lobbying their members to say, hey, don't do this alternative. So I think the votes were there if we had tried to separate the two efforts. Mm. But I think from a PR perspective, the president and others felt, how can I repeal it if I'm not offering an alternative? And so they wanted to do it. People want their health care. Right. Um, but I, I, I mean, it's not as if it's not as if even if you repealed it, there would have been nothing there. Of course, sure. there's a market system, but I think that tactically, Leader McConnell had the better advice, um, and I and I wish we'd we'd followed it. I think that uh, the the president and Speaker Ryan wanted to do both repeal and replace at the same time. Um, let's move on to a legislative success um, <laughs> and 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 2017 tax cuts and, and Jobs Act. Right now, we find ourselves in the Biden administration where they're trying to figure out how to spend trillions of dollars and they want to raise taxes to get their billionaires taxed, the corporate minimum tax. Uh, But the legislation had some bipartisan support, didn't it? How did it pass in 2017? Uh, well, actually, it was pretty much on straight party lines. It was on? We didn't get anybody? I thought, okay. Um, well. But uh, uh, we, it wasn't for lack of trying. Mm. But here's where I think to your first question. Um, my sense was that Speaker Pelosi, Leader Schumer, told their con- conferences, don't help them because they failed on repeal and replace. Don't give them any victories so they show they can do it. Conversely, for Republicans, when we failed on repeal and replace, um, political donation support fell apart for Republicans in Congress. And they then knew we better get something done. So they were incented to pass tax relief, even if they weren't entirely on board the policy because their own donations had collapsed. And, and so that created a very partisan dynamic where I think Democrats were sort of challenging. Can you get it done? Don't go, don't go help them out. Um, Interestingly, I think today where we are in this debate is, um, is Manchin did, did approach us about saying, um, if you could put the corporate rate at 25%, okay, so I, I could get there. And as you know, we lowered it from 35 to 21. And I, and I think internally there was debate about, well, um, what does that get us if we go to 25? There some, could be some help in being bipartisan, but sort of the answer was, well, what are you bringing? If you bring 10 Democrats, then all of a sudden you reach 60 votes and you're, you're across the filibuster and you don't have to, to have any sort of reconciliation to get this done. And so um, that would have been a big gift. But you were never going to get 60. We were never going to get In fact, there wasn't even another one that right, that right. could bring to the table. So I think our consideration is like we're then it's sort of negotiating against ourselves because we have the votes to get it to 21. Why would we give up to go to 25 if it's really not going to get us to 60? And at that point, Manchin's like, well, I can't wait till I'm another scenario where <laughs> they absolutely need my vote because that wasn't the case back in, in 2017. That, of course, that legislation... You know, I guess an economist will debate this, but really was that shot in the arm for the economy uh, that up until COVID breaks out in March of 2020, the economy was gangbusters. It's hard to argue against that, um, you know, in 2019 and, and forward. We created over 7 million jobs in uh, about three years, and unemployment reaches lowest point ever for African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, lowest at 3.5%, was the lowest in 50 years. And so I think that uh, clearly it did what we were hoping to do, which was to bring jobs back. And, and that's what so many of those voters in middle America felt, particularly right. manufacturing jobs, that the policies of previous administrations had chased jobs overseas. 
And so this tax relief was was not just uh, something that supply side or free market economists would support. It was also very much part of the America First agenda of how do we bring these jobs back to back to within. So, so, so let's drill down a little bit more on that. To the skeptic who'd say, "Listen, this is just a way to line the pockets of big corporations, so you know their their tax liability goes down." But there was no line connecting that to a plant creating more jobs in the U.S. What's a, what's a counter to that kind of skeptical read of tax policy translating to job opportunities for middle America? Well, I, I think that uh, some of those naysaying economists uh, really don't appreciate how many jobs were chased overseas, uh, whether or not that's to Asia and China or to Mexico, uh, because what we had reached was our taxation was amongst the very highest among organized uh, developed countries across the globe. And when you add state and local taxes, which a lot of countries aren't paying, it truly was the highest. So that's, so, you know, you, you get your corporate tax and then, you know, wherever you are, the state you're in, yeah. the locality you're in, they add to, on top of that. That's right. real money going out. Right. And so the reality is we were making it much more difficult for America to compete. And when we lowered it to 21, and if you remember in 2016, the campaign pledged we were going to try to get to 15. Yeah. So we actually want to go lower, but in our negotiations internally, that was as low as we could get within the, the budget constraints that Senator Corker put on us. And so, um, so 21 was, was where we could go, but that put us only in the middle. It's not like we got to the bottom. It just put us in the middle. And I still think it generated enormous economic growth. Let's just jump to headlines today for a second. Then I want to go back to uh, the Gorsuch nomination. But right now we have a discussion of this uh, global corporate minimum tax rate. Our, our Secretary Yellen, the Secretary of Treasury, is trying to piece this together. Uh, the number would be, I want to say, 15, 20%. Some, I think 15%. How do you look at that? Um, and, you know, there's a sovereignty issue, which I think conservatives are generally sensitive to. Um, but also, you know, if you read the Wall Street Journal editorial pages, this is just, you know, a means towards, uh, you know, more taxation on, on, on corporate America and, and makes them less competitive. Give me more detail on how you view it. I guess I view it a couple different ways. One is just on the principle that... Um the, the genesis of this, as you know, is they, is they keep citing that there's a race to the bottom. And so therefore we need to have a... a, a so the Ireland's of the world that say, come to our country because you will not have to pay any taxes and we'll lose businesses, right? I mean, that is so backward, right? I mean, you, we should have a competition so you can get the lowest tax rate. That's what we should be vying for. Not something that says somehow perversely that that's a race to the bottom. That's really not a race to the bottom. Um, so uh, so I, I think that their, their foundation is wrong. But I mean, it's like Roger, venue shopping in law, right? I mean, right? You're going right, but but let's even look at another step. If we have 15, percent let's if that's what they want, let's go ahead and go for it. We only got to 21, right? All their proposals are to raise our corporate tax rate. So if they really want a 15 percent minimum, let's put that on the table. But I haven't Congress. I haven't seen that argument. It's, no. So how, how does that all get reconciled? Because clearly, 15 percent is a good number. That's the ta that was the Trump number. So something else is afoot here, right? Well, I, again, I, my suspicion is you, once you've set this, you can't repeal it. So then they can continue to crank it up in the years in the future. Like once you've established a global minimal tax, then um, then future generations they can continue to argue as to why it needs to go up. And, and, and then you get the treaty piece, right? I mean, do you yeah. so if we're going to go ahead and compromise our sovereignty and tie ourselves into some global tax rate? Do you think the U.S. Senate should be involved in, oh, in that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's something that would need a, a, a Senate uh, 
uh, vote. And I, and I think that, uh, you know, even that was some argument that we made during the, uh, the Iranian nuclear deal, the JCPOA contract, is that, is that uh, truly it's a treaty. So it should be something that requires a two-thirds vote in the Senate. Of course, the Obama administration never could have gotten a two-thirds vote, which is why they didn't push it as well, a treaty. I mean, that's why if it's an executive agreement, it's only good for the length of the executive. Um, and, and, and although I think Secretary Yellen uh, somehow has come up with a formula where this doesn't need to go before uh, the Senate. More to come on that. But let's go back to perhaps, you know, the greatest achievement, I think, for the Trump administration, um, arguably, uh, you're involved in, which is the nomination of, of judges and confirmation of, of judges. In this case, uh, nothing was more focused on, um, got more attention than the confirmation of Supreme Court justice first with Justice Gorsuch. Leading into the Trump administration, of course, uh, Majority Leader McConnell, Mitch McConnell, famously gave the Heisman to Obama's nominee, uh, who's now the Attorney General Garland, very controversial, at least in the pages of, uh, you know, the New York Times, and the Washington Post and, and the media. But then there was a vacancy to fill. And of course, this was the Scalia vacancy. I think that um, McConnell is on solid ground on his history here in that when there's a vacancy during a presidential year and you have divided Congress, it, it remains open for the American people to get to weigh in on. But I'll also say that politically, it was it was a very helpful move because as, as Donald Trump was trying to assemble the various constituencies, there were certainly a lot of conservatives apprehensive about his candidacy yeah. and from different elements. But when it was, this was one more reason to say, well, this, who Donald Trump nominates could be very different than who Hillary Clinton nominates to fill a swing seat on the Supreme Court. And I think it helped um, assure many voters that, hey, this is the right pathway to go. Let me press on that because you're not only a sophisticated policy player, you're sophisticated on the political side. The people who wanted Donald Trump to nominate federal society approved, you know, judges or jurists, you know, that's important to get their buy-in in the movement. But is that really important in terms of getting them to go out and vote and kind of have an electoral impact? I think there were a lot of different factions that were incredibly important. Um, some of them were from those who, who felt like Supreme Court is essential. For some, it was a belief that, uh, that life was on the ballot, and this would be one of our best chances to address Roe v. Wade. For some, it was national security conservatives who said, you know, I may have apprehensions, but, but who he's assembling it gives me more comfort. I, I think that in each of those cases, Roger, you have to remember how narrow the 2016 victory was. Yeah. So if you're talking about one or two percent electorate, it's incredibly. You can't take any of it for granted. No, it's very significant. Uh, going through that process, Gorsuch. I mean, really a fine nominee. This is uh, a person who played it perfectly, as best you can tell. Really, you have to go back to maybe Roberts was somebody who may have had a better confirmation hearing. I defer to others who, who kind of watch every move and, you know, look. But anything surprise you there? Was that just a, a perfect play? How did that go down with Gorsuch from, from, from your view? Because that was important to get that, that one right. It was, it was very important to get it right. And I think that, um, um, you know, during the transition, the president had asked the vice president to interview the finalists. And so he, he played a very um, hidden role 
in the selection of each of the jurists. Um, and I think it was, it was something that the president felt comfortable in Pence's judgment on. But, you know, certainly Don McGahn and Leonard Leo deserve enormous credit for the judgment. It's the White House counsel. Yeah, sorry, the, the White House counsel, Don McGahn and Leonard, who had, who had chaired uh, the Federalist Society and, and it helped pull together that, that initial list. of Which came out during the campaign. Yeah, I mean, it, it really assured, you know, conservatives uh, that Donald Trump was going to be committed to the right set of people. It was, I think, a great strategic move because it wasn't just, here's the type of person. It wasn't, here's the demeanor I'm looking for. It was, here's my actual name. Right. I'm putting on a piece of paper. I'm going to choose from these names, which I think, um, which gave, I think, a lot of voters additional comfort. Let's move on. Uh, obviously, that, that those are pretty huge achievements for uh, White House legislative uh, director there. Um, let's go to the end. You, you find yourself chief of staff to vice president and the vice president is given the mission of kind of leading the coronavirus task force. Not kind of, he was the lead global pandemic, a lot of ink spilled on what was going on in the white house. You're the chief of staff. When that hits you, how do you organize yourself? The president is giving a really tough assignment not a whole lot. I mean, you have to go back about a century to figure out you know, what was done. The world's changed significantly since the last time an elected official had to manage this. And then you come up with a framework for you know, getting the vaccine. Give us some insight on how that all came together and, and how you kind of supported the vice president when, when he was the person responsible for responding. Well, I think there's obviously going to be many more chapters written on this piece of history and I want them to consult this discussion. <laughs> I see I, in a footnote. I think that there's a legitimate question about whether or not, you know, those sorts of efforts should be brought into the White House. I think if you look at uh, it's a different scale, but we didn't know the scale when when coronavirus was was happening. What you knew is, is there been a mysterious virus in China and you'd had your first cases of, of people flying back home and, and, and landing in Seattle and um, and it was at that point just the beginning. But when swine flu hit, you know, the Obama administration never brought it into the White House. They kept it at HHS and CDC. And I think politically, there's probably some benefit to the president to be able to say that's being handled over here by the medical community. I think once you bring it into the White House, it creates a whole other political you got dynamic. The, you got the political layer. Look, look, that's interesting. Let me just kind of push that for a minute. In, in the past, you said swine flu that it stayed in the agencies, Department of Health and Human Services and the Center for uh, Disease Control, and let the quote-unquote experts and technocrats run it. At the same time, when there's an armed conflict, mm -hmm. our Constitution says the president's the commander-in-chief, and therefore the president's going to have a role in managing that conflict. Now, a global pandemic isn't the classical conf armed conflict war that the constitution contemplates, but we do use that language. So where do you come out on this uh, approach? And after your experience, do I hear that you're leaning, maybe it should have been left with HHS and, and CDC? I, I think that uh, I'm, I'm trying to be pretty neutral and to say that uh, it's not a perfect analogy to the swine flu. I'm right. simply saying that it was a legitimate debate in the White House. Yeah. Like, should this even be brought in or should it be left at HHS and CDC? And there are, particularly in a campaign year, additional political uh, ramifications of when you bring it into the White House. 
Um, I think that in encapsulating them, you know, I, I know we, we could have a whole 45 minute conversation on COVID alone, but I guess my quick summary would be to say that I think there were so many elements we succeeded on. Um, at the time, people thought, you know, we needed more ventilators. Right. And the fact that, that we were able to mobilize the private sector and auto factories and others to create ventilators was remarkable. Uh, people talked about supplies, and you went from having no tests on COVID to about the time we left, over 300 million tests had been conducted. And certainly the success with the vaccinations that typically would take five, seven years, that within one year, you didn't have just one or two, but actually three successful vaccinations is remarkable. But I think another part yeah. of any uh, health pandemic is also the public response. And I think that um, certainly that's where we came up short. And, and so even though, even though we accomplished, I think, so much structurally, uh, certainly the media is going to look at what was, what was the communication response to the American people. And, and I think that that's, that's what's un unfortunately often going to be criticized or remembered. Now, ideally, you want to inspire confidence. You want people uh, to, to, to trust what they're hearing, to try your best to have a consistent message, despite the fact that information is changing constantly because we're learning new things as we go. I mean, I think that's what, that's what you're referring to. Yeah. And, and I think that, uh, you know, for, there was a couple of weeks when, uh, when Pence was first put in, in the task force that he was leading the daily briefings. And I think there was a certain element of empathy as well as also uh, knowledge of the situation that it was comforting. But um, over time um, that, that I think was. Uh, Others was, took over the press yeah, conferences, exactly. <laughs> you know, right? Well, uh, two things just, uh, I'm, I'm curious about, were you shocked when other ventilators or even just simple things as masks and that this global supply chain for what was needed, generic drugs was tied to China. Right. And we found ourselves vulnerable because we were reliant on that. We, we kind of knew that conceptually, but were you just surprised like, wow, this is, this is now preventing government taking care of its people in this profound way. Yeah, I think again, it's it was one of the things that um, that I think President Trump was was able to tap into a frustration in American people that some of these global supply chains, you know, were no longer things that were they're manufactured domestically. And when you're talking about healthcare, yeah, and, and we actually we actually found it not just in supplies, but sometimes in some of the pharmaceuticals that were being used in the early days to treat it they were all being manufactured overseas as well. So you, you didn't even have the drugs being manufactured here domestically. Yeah, generic drugs, I think, were right. overseas primarily in China. Um, yes, and, and, and Pakistan, candidly. And so it was, there, had, there had to be outreach to say, how can we get some of that back here to the United States? And that's not a position you ever want to be in. And I think, you know, I, I think that the president was right, that, that, that we don't want to be dependent upon foreign countries. It's bad enough when you're dependent upon uh, luxuries of cars or televisions, right. but it's different when it's a healthcare care. And the story continues, you know, from uh the chips that go into our iPhones or our right. cars today, you know, so it's, it's really stayed constant and we're, we're still reeling from the supply chain impact uh, of COVID. But again, I think that one of the things that caused that was that we had a bad labor policy, but also an out of whack tax policy. And so companies were discouraged overseas. from staying here and they moved overseas. Which gets back to that first piece of, of legislation. One more on, on, on COVID because, because of President Trump and because he elicits such just dramatic reactions from love to hate and very little in between. You think about the Trump administration response, you know, operation warp speed seems just to get lost and you know, 
Vice President Pence uh, and you were, were intimately involved and that drove the fact that we have vaccines, highly performing vaccines uh, that has kept us safer and, and prevented the spread uh, and continues now, people getting their, their booster. That was a very sophisticated approach in terms of public-private partnership. Give us a little insight into how that came about and, and was it controversial? Uh, whether was there kind of a call where you could have gone in different and taken on a different, sure. entirely different direction and, and wouldn't resulted in Moderna and Pfizer and J and J that we all benefit from today. Yeah, I think there's a few people that deserve a lot of credit. One is the president himself. When when we first uh, were put in this role, the vice president assembled a bunch of CEOs of pharmaceutical manufacturers in uh, the cabinet room, and they they gave their outline for how long it would take. And the president was very direct, and that's not that's not good enough. We, we need it faster. We need it this year. And so the president was really impatient, but Press driving on. it. But I think tactically, honestly, as Secretary Azar and FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn, I think deserve a lot of credit because the concept it, uh, is, is oversimplification, but the concept was in many cases when you're producing a vaccination, you, you have something, you go to trial, and then you, you take years to go through the trial. And then if you find something that works, you then have to ramp up production. What Azar and Han did is they, they moved the FDA pro approval process quicker, but also it was getting agreement for the government to go ahead and purchase as soon as Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson Johnson thought they had something. Stockpile that. Stockpile. And they said, if it ends up not working in the trial, then we'll throw them out. We'll eat the cost of the federal government. You don't have to bear that cost. But we're, That's important. how government deals with market incentives. Yeah, it was important enough to say, we're gonna, if you think you've got something, we'll go ahead and buy it so you can begin the production and ramp up production while the testing is going on. So the day FDA approves it, you don't then have to ramp up production. You already have ready to go, which could be months. Maybe then, uh, years, years, usually. And so then it's a distribution question. And as long as there's a dis distribution model, then, then we can get the supply out. Was that out of a playbook? No, that that I think was was a was a new idea. That and, was an audible. They're out and, there, and, and the distribution, I should say, was really through Department of Defense, right? And, and, and Defense Production and, Act and, and all that. And yeah. they were the ones that had the model for how to get it to get it distributed. Yeah, we've had uh, Ellen Lord was an official there uh, in, in the administration and their the Defense Department who, who worked there. We've we've spoken with before on that. Let's move away from COVID and and kind of catch up to where we are today. Uh, since leaving the Trump White House, uh, Vice President Pence started a policy and advocacy organization called Advancing American Freedom. Uh, you serve as the, the co-chair of the organization. Is that uh, consuming all your time? And, and what, what does that entail? What are you doing on, on that front? Uh, well, Advancing American Freedom, I think, is dedicated to belief that there is a coalition that is a, a winning coalition for the policies I think you and I and many of your listeners hold dear, which I think that uh, the Pence represents many of the traditional conservative values that I think um, that we have no greater leader than Ronald Reagan to help champion. But I think there was a new, a new segment of voters that came in that were attracted to President Trump's views on trade and immigration um, and relations with China. And so and, and it's sort of merging that, that more populist vote with traditional conservatism that we think is a formula for success and is a winning agenda so forward. It's, it's, uh, if I take it right, I'm sure you're not just being diplomatic because you're sitting here in the Reagan Institute, but it, it's clearly the, the, the outlook of a hybrid between uh, Reagan-esque outlook, 
uh, but some of those key elements that brought President Trump into office and the Trump administration advocated for and, and pushed during the years in office. Right. I mean, I, I think that, as you know, from the vice president's speech recently at the Reagan Library, he certainly views himself as, as a disciple of Reaganism. And that that was his uh, his lodestar and a standard bearer for throughout his congressional career. Um, but certainly there was something that Donald Trump tapped into that added to that coalition and, and what we believe is that defending those policies and better articulating them into the future is, is the formula for growth for our conservative movement. So let's take that outlook and talk a little bit about uh, the upcoming uh, midterm elections. There was uh, an opinion piece by Jerry Baker in the Wall Street Journal recently in his column, Free Expression, uh, called GOP has a chance at more than election victory. In this piece, he says there are a few temptations uh, before Republicans as they enter the midterms. One is to just follow the MAGA road. My words, not a direct quote, but do what President Trump did and, and, and run on President Trump. He rejects that ultimately because uh, President Trump continues to say the election was stolen and he does not believe this is Jerry Baker uh, is, a, is a winning formula. Um, tied in there is January 6th and whatever role President Trump played and continues to play around the election. Second, a temptation that he calls out is an attempt at a reversion to Reaganism, right, which she rejects because uh, he thinks that advocating, you know, big tax cuts and, you know, reducing the role of government our lives through deregulation is not enough to kind of address the needs of those voters we were talking about uh, in 2016 that voted uh, for President Trump in, in middle America. Well, that would seem to critique or disagree with, with the formula of Vice President Pence put forward, as you mentioned during our Time for Choosing series, where you know, he really did offer this, this approach where it's this hybrid, you know, Reagan optimism, small government, um, uh, restore American pride, of Reagan tax policy, but also, as you note, uh, trade immigration uh, and, and this emphasis on China, though I think that's kind of Reagan-esque to raise concern and focus on the Chinese Communist Party. Um, what's, your, what's your thinking in terms of those who question whether that's a, a winning approach for Republicans in 2022 and I, I suppose in 2024 as well? I think voters always want to be forward-looking and not looking back in the rearview mirror. But at the same time, I think we can all look at what are the policies that have been most successful for us over the years. And I think that um, uh, every time Americans have a taste of big government socialism, they decide they want to go back to freedom. And whether or not that was that was after the the Jimmy Carter years and and finding you know that that optimistic view of what America could be again or whether or not that was after eight years of Obama, I think you're going to see similar dynamics that after the, the, year, the, and the agenda here that uh, Pelosi and Schumer and Biden are pushing, there's going to be a great pushback to, uh, to a more limited government approach. And I think you'll see that in, in 2022. It's not, it's not wrapped around a personality. It's saying this is what, this is what Americans want. And I think it, the corollary to that is in 2020, I don't think they were voting for those big government policies. I don't think in the same year that the president lost, you would have elected 15 new House Republicans if voters were saying we're rejecting the agenda. Yeah, it didn't seem to be uh, an election that said, yes, we want three and a half, four and a half trillion dollars in spending, not only for Republicans are elected, 
But as we see with Senator Cinema and, and Senator Manchin, you know, this is not an issue with Republicans right now. So it's an issue with Democrats. We can go back to that in just a moment, but I want to drill down um, on one other facet of Vice President Pence's speech he gave in June of this year at the Reagan Library, a part of our Time for Choosing series. There was a big emphasis in the speech on the Constitution. Really stood out. Read a couple of quotes here. He said, this is Vice President Pence, in the years ahead, the American people must know that our Republican Party will always keep our oath to the Constitution, even when it would be politically expedient to do otherwise. Clear reference to the events in and around January 6th and the lie that the election was stolen. Second, there's more at stake than our party and other political fortunes in this moment. If we lose faith in the Constitution, we won't just lose elections, we'll lose our country. So now more than ever, America needs the Republican Party to be the party of the Constitution of the United States. It was a very interesting device because... If a listener wanted to interpret that around President Trump and January 6th, they could have adopted that interpretation. And if a listener wanted to interpret that and say, well, that's a critique of what the Democrats are doing right now in this country in terms of losing face to the Constitution, be it court packing or other uh, progressive agenda items, you could interpret it that way. Of course, my takeaway is he probably meant both. That seems to be significant. I think you've interpreted it correctly. I think that uh, um, the vice president has always viewed himself as a constitutional conservative, even when it hurt. And I think, you know, from a philosophical viewpoint, people forget that when, when he was in the house in his first few years, you know, he wrote a piece that he felt like um, he had, he, he, he came to Washington in year 2000 on the heels of George Bush's victory. And as much as he admired George Bush, you know, his first bill was, expanding uh, No Child Left Behind, expanding right. Department of Education. And then he was, he was given Medicare, an expansion of Medicare Part D. And then it was, it was uh, yeah, uh, cash for clunkers. And then it was, you know, the, um, the Wall Street bailout. And he voted against all of those. And people forget that, that, that he, was, he was always even willing to buck his own party to believe in the, in the small government policies that he did. And I think in some ways similar to Reagan, because he always maintained, even in, in his disagreements, a sunny optimism and a cheerfulness of like, I don't have to be disagreeable and disagreeing with you. But his, he was an adherence to the Constitution. And I think he's saying that we have to adhere to that even when it hurts moving forward. And yes, you're right. He always viewed that he, he took, he swore an oath to the Constitution when he took that role as vice president of the United States. And as he said, it's the same oath that his son takes in the Marines and his son-in-law mm-hmm. takes in the Navy. And so he has, a, he has an obligation to, to stick to that Constitution, even when we may feel that there are irregularities in the election of 2020, and some that I think need to be fixed at the state level. And I think the vice president has been supportive of changes in Georgia and Pennsylvania and, and Texas. But at the same time, he had a constitutional role that day, and he swore an oath to defend that Constitution. And ultimately put his life at risk with that decision. Um, let's move to... The Biden administration, the Democratic agenda, and then perhaps get your take on how Virginia is shaping up uh, and talking about the gubernatorial race. But you write uh, frequently uh, on TV regularly um, about Biden administration policies and how it's impacting the American worker. Big priority uh, focus. Trump administration continues to be where elected Republicans focus. How, how are we doing by the American worker? Connect for us, or perhaps give us the critique of this huge package going through the Congress, spending package, and 
increasing of entitlements and your view as to how it negatively impacts or undermines the American worker? Well, for starters, 30 seconds or less. Well, for starters, <laughs> we're at the, the lowest labor partition, participation rate we've been in generations. And I think that um, uh, we have, we've pursued policies that encourage people not to work. And, and that certainly is detrimental to our country's future if that's, if that's a path we're going to pursue. This massive uh, trillions of dollars in tax and spend falls on the heels of $6 trillion in COVID relief. And so if you were to add up what their plan was of three and a half plus the trillion for COVID relief, and, and the Wall Street Journal is actually scored it higher, you add that to COVID, the numbers more or less add up to $12 trillion, which is a remarkable number outside of our federal government's annual budget. It would more or less be akin to saying we have about 120 million families in America. We could send direct payments of $100,000 to every family in America that would equate to this $12 trillion in spending that they're proposing. And, and I think it sets us on, on a pathway that is, 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 um, is very difficult to alter. Uh, so the taxes almost seem as if they're just an excuse to pay for the spending that they want to do. And in light of them saying it costs nothing, I'm not sure what the taxes are really for, um, <laughs> uh, except that we know, of course, it doesn't cost nothing, and it costs us a lot. And $12 trillion is an enormous amount of spending. So much of what you've done throughout your professional life, so much of what Vice President Pence has done through his time in public office, governor, member of the House, really uh, wanted to keep government small, stay close, tight to what the Constitution delegates the executive to do and make sure that federal government doesn't grow, limits its growth beyond that. There was a lot of spending during the Trump years. Yeah, there was a lot of spending. I think it was uh, an unfortunate part of our record. Again, I, I'm very proud of so much that President Trump, I think, accomplished on the courts and on tax policy, on our foreign policy, on our trade agenda. But I think that uh, that one area that uh, we still did not rein in was the spending. And um, that hurting Republicans right now when they I critique. Think I think it does hurt. I think I think because because in essence, you're not really arguing of who is who is against the spending. You're just arguing of who's for spending more. Like it's, right, it's, right. it's an amount. It's not a principle anymore. And so, so yeah, I, I think it does. And I, I think that, um, you know, I don't think anybody knows at what point we reach a tipping point. Um, and I, I have to believe it's only going to come when, when interest rates reach a point that it hurts every single American. Uh, but we're, still, it's, 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 we're certainly tempting it right now. We are tempting it. We certainly are. And, and I think that the notion that inflation is just transitory has been proven false. Well, the Fed chair... He's starting to walk that back. He said it was something that was going to pass and seems to be reconsidering it now. Well, I, again, the people that are hurt most by that are going to be middle income or Let's pass along income. to the consumer, right? I mean, that's what well, yeah, it's going to be passed along to the consumer. So the people who have to drive farthest to their jobs are paying higher uh, bills at the, the tax pump right now. They're paying bigger grocery bills because it costs more to, to transport goods to the grocery store. Uh, they're paying higher heating bills that they can't afford. Um, and also the value of their dollar doesn't go as far because of inflation. So all this leads, uh, to put it in crass political terms, to the likelihood that Republicans will regain the majority in the House of Representatives and increasingly seems to be plausible in the Senate too. I heard one <laughs> member of the House said recently that, you know, take a, some sort of meteor strike here, you know, to change the environment. They're really betting on this happening. We have a very significant 
election coming up by the time uh, this podcast is is published, perhaps it may be behind us. That's in Virginia with the gubernatorial race. We have Youngkin versus McAuliffe. How do you see that shaking out? Less of a prediction, but just what the dynamic in the race and the fact that it's so darn close in a state and in counties that were so heavily for Biden, what does it tell you uh, about how politics are shaping up now in, in 2021, 2022? Well, I think it's a pretty clear indication that the, the American voter was not voting for this agenda when they voted uh, for Biden over Trump. And I think you look at uh, Virginia, um, you know, in 2009, Bob McDonald won the race after Obama had won in 2008. It's the last time Virginia had a Republican governor. And I think it was it portended the uh, the midterms in 2010. We won 63 House seats. I think there's a lot of similarities this year. And I think that Virginia is only becoming a more Democrat state in the intervening um, 12 years. The reality is that is that Northern Virginia continues to grow and so many federal workers live in Northern Virginia and that dwarfs the population across the rest of the state. But if Glenn Youngkin uh, wins on Tuesday, which I think is a likelihood at this point, I think it's going to be um, it's going to be a shockwave for the agenda they have on Capitol Hill. You're going to find more House Democrats pulling back from this massive tax and spend bill and saying, I don't want to lose like Terry McAuliffe did. So you can't take those voters for granted. They may register as Democratic in the state. They maybe all Northern Virginia is growing across the state. But it doesn't mean they're signing up for the progressive agenda. Or yes, or at the least, these are independent voters who, um, you know, will, are are a growing portion of the electorate because the voters have become less satisfied with both parties. So the independent voter is growing, and uh, certainly that swing appears to be going toward Yunkin. We got to jump to our lightning round. Fascinating conversation, really insightful stuff, both about what happened over uh, the past four years in the Trump administration and how to look and evaluate what's happening in America today. Lightning round. We ask you like all our guests, your favorite book on Reagan, favorite Reagan speech, favorite Reagan quote. We know your favorite Reagan picture has been established here today, signing the economic package reform on, uh, at the Reagan ranch. What's your favorite book? Well, I, I'm, I'm going to fail you on the lightning part, but I'm going to give you three. And one, <laughs> one is, is D'Souza's book on how an ordinary man became an extraordinary leader. And the reason I say that is because Dinesh wrote his right about the same time as Edmund Morris's book that came out that I think unfortunately bought into the notion of, of, of Reagan as sort of the amiable dunce. And I think that Dinesh was very good at chronicling here's what his policy achievements were. I'd say um, Paul Kangor's A Pope and a President gives a very incredible story yes. about what happened in Eastern Europe mm -hmm. and how the two of them formed a partnership to bring freedom to Eastern Europe. And then certainly just you and I have talked about this before, but I'm a big fan of Peggy Noonan. And I think the way she writes about when character was king is a, is a, is a great read too. Great books. Uh, fantastic response to the lightning round. Did you want to throw in a speech there or a quote? I, I think the most important speech that, I, that is uh, you, we were looking at the wall here and, the, and what, he, what he addressed in his farewell speech is, is just great. Um, it, it's, it's poetic, but I'd say the more important speech that he gave was the, was the Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. It will always be one that I think changed the course of history. Mark Short, thank you so much for joining the show. My honor.